0: If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to make your way to Matthew chapter 11. We are continuing our series of going through the Gospels, and we're working our way through them accordingly, as as best as we can chronologically, just to get a a full glimpse of what the Gospels give us concerning Jesus Christ, so we can understand His ministry, His life, His meaning, His teachings, and how that is to impact us. And um, I'd like to begin this morning with a little bit of of confession Uh, There are times I get in trouble with Jamie. And uh, I I do this sometimes because sometimes she'll ask me something, or she'll say something, or she may even do something, and she's expecting a particular response from me that she does not receive. And so I can kind of get a feeling, guys, you know, that feeling that I think something's wrong, and I'm pretty sure that I'm the one who did the something that make it wrong. And so we have to go over the ledge, don't we, guys? We have to figure it out. We, we, we're hoping our feelings are off on the, on the matter, but we got to begin asking questions. And I've never learned my lesson in asking questions, because once you start asking questions, you begin unscrewing the top of the bottle or the, the jar, and you begin to letting things out. So I'll just begin with, are you okay? And guys, what's the answer? I'm fine. Fine. Okay. Um, is there something wrong? And that's when we did a look in the eyes? Nope. And that's when you know. I mean, that's when your heart just drops, and you're like, i got to go to the next question, and I don't want to. Um, did I do something wrong? Seriously? And that's when you just open it all up, and, and you figure out, like, how much of a blunder you did. But she, she gets mad at me sometimes says, I don't respond the way she feels I should respond and I'll admit to that. And I share this not to share how awesome I am, but because that's really what's happening here in our passage this morning is uh, people were not responding to Jesus the way he wanted them to respond. So again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 20. And with Matthew 11 and Luke 7, if you were to look at those two, they've made, remained pretty similar for the most part. There's been a couple differences in usage of words or phrases and things like that, but we've, we've been working through that and showing how that it didn't really make it wrong or, 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 or contradict one another, that they're actually just saying it in different ways. But here in Matthew 11, Matthew's led to insert a reprimand concerning some Jewish towns, and then he goes to Jesus lifting up a public prayer, And finally, Jesus delivering an invitation to be his disciples and what that means and what that entails and what we are to be doing as Jesus' disciples. And so we left off last week where Jesus was reprimanding the people of his generation because they were plain Christian or they were plain as God's people, but they're not actually being God's people. And we talk about how God does not want us to be plain Christian or plain church, he wants to be, us to be participating Christians and participating in church, to be a part of his, his plan that he is unfolding. Well, Jesus begins reprimanding some towns that he has visited uh, because they have not responded correctly in, the, in repenting. So let's begin in verse 20, and we're going to read through verse 30 this morning. And the word of the Lord says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day." But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, verse 25. And at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me all who labor and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jumping back to verse 20, that word "denounced" there in verse 20 means to reprimand or to rebuke. In the initial reading of the passage, it might seem that Jesus is trying to blow off some steam, that he's heavily aggravated with people around him, but the verb denounce means to reprimand someone who obviously knows they're at fault for something. Kind of like us guys with our wives, right? We get reprimanded sometimes. The someone at fault are the three cities that are mentioned in our passage of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, Capernaum should be the town that we should be most familiar with. We've seen Jesus in Capernaum quite frequently in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. It's actually referred to as his town. It was in Capernaum where Jesus first read in the synagogue. It was in Capernaum where he cast out the demon that came into the synagogue. He healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law and healed other individuals and cast out other demons. That's a more familiar city. Now, the only miracle we know about in Bethsaida, because it plays a much minor role within the Gospels, is when Jesus heals a blind man in the Gospel of Mark, and it's only recorded in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. Now, Chorazin is only mentioned here in Matthew 11 and in Luke's recording of this passage in Luke chapter 10. So in other words, outside of those instances and outside of Capernaum, we really don't know what Jesus did in these three towns, but we can assume He did some miracles. We can assume he taught. We can assume that he was there and people had an experience with him. As a matter of fact, we can know for sure because of our passage that he, in fact, did miraculous or mighty works, which is saying he did miracles there. The issue at hand is this Jesus was there teaching and doing miracles, and the people experienced it, they witnessed it, but the people in the towns did not repent. The word repent means to change one's way of life, resulting in a complete change of thought and attitude in regard to sin and righteousness. It literally means and calls for a change of heart and a turning to God. We can think of it like a 180. We are turning from our sin and we're turning to the holiness of God. The Bible reveals that repentance is essential for salvation. After Peter delivered the first message in the book of Acts at Pentecost and the people heard him speaking of Jesus Christ and pointing to Jesus through the prophecies in what we call the Old Testament, the people came to the end of his message and they asked, what shall we do in response to this? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. In Acts chapter 3, Peter again delivers a message and the people want to know what should they do and he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. We have to understand that the life, the ministry, and the work of Christ calls us to repent. It calls us to change, to be a different person, to be as Scripture says, that the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. It doesn't mean that we're no longer going to wrestle with sin. It doesn't mean we're no longer going to stumble into sin. But what it means is when we realize that happens, we recognize it, we remember Jesus Christ, and then we repent from it. The issue concerning these three towns in verses 20 through 24 is that they would have recognized Christ from being from God. They would recognize the power of God coming out of him and doing these mighty works. There's miracles. There's no doubt he would have done some teaching in in each town, which would have led them to repent. But the people in the town remained the same. They did not change. And it might sound like Christ is heavily upset, but the word woe there in verse 21 is a word that expresses regret. And it carries the meaning of having compassion and warning. It's like a parent telling their child, you can't go there or you can't do that. We don't tell our children these things because we don't love them or we're mad at them. We do that because we as parents see the warning signs. We see where that is going. We see the danger ahead. And so we tell them to not do that, to not go that way. In verse 21, Jesus directs his attention to two towns, and when he speaks of the towns, he's speaking of the people in the towns, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he speaks of them by comparing them to the towns Tyre and Sidon, and he says that they would have repented. The interesting thing about the comparison of Korzan and Bethsaida and Tyre and Sidon is Korzan and Bethsaida, these were Jewish communities, while Tyre and Sidon, these were largely Gentile communities. And in the Old Testament, they spoke against the prophets, and the prophets called judgment upon these people. Tyre and on bordered on the Mediterranean Sea. They were harbor towns. They're closely associated with the Philistines, which are a constant thorn in the side of the people of Israel. Just think about David and Goliath. Leon Morris points out that they had been great and powerful cities for centuries, and their proximity to Israel had meant a good deal of contact. But since they were heathen cities, their customs offended the Israelites, and the cities thus were well known for their shortcomings. Now the oddity of Jesus comparing a Jewish, Jewish towns to Gentile towns is Jesus saying if he would have done what he did in the Jewish towns, but did in the Gentile towns, they would have repented. They would have responded appropriately. He says there in verse 21, they repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He even expands this to the day of judgment being more bearable for these Gentile towns than for these Jewish ones. So this would have been a huge turn of events. The Jewish people felt that they were good with God, that they would escape the day of judgment, that they would not be cast out of God's presence simply because of their birthright through uh, Abraham. And what Jesus is calling them to is saying, not so fast. You need to understand what is happening in your towns and what you are not doing The issue of sackcloth and ashes is a common way for the Jewish people to show they were repenting of their sins. That word bearable can also be read as tolerable or better off. Jesus is not saying that there are going to be levels of judgment or there are going to be levels of hell. He's pointing out that the Jew and the Gentile will all be held accountable to God. That's what the day of judgment is speaking of. It's speaking of that final day where all people of all nations will come before God and we will be judged. We will either be a believer or an unbeliever. Those are only two options when it comes to the end. But that was a day the Israelites believed they'd be, they'd be all right. They'd be better off. They'd definitely be better than a Gentile. They'd definitely be better than a heathen or pagan. They'd definitely be better than anyone who wasn't a Jew. Again, Jesus is saying, not so fast. And he points out the Jewish people of these towns, they had all the information before them and did nothing with it, while the Gentile towns had no information. But if they would have had it, they would have changed and responded appropriately. The teaching seems to imply that God is going to judge people according to the knowledge they had of the truth and how they responded to it. And here's a lesson we need to take from this. How we respond to Jesus is of the utmost importance. How we respond to God, how we respond to the Holy Spirit, how we respond to God's Word is vital. And Jesus amplifies this lesson by drawing attention to Capernaum. And what he does is he compares Capernaum with Sodom. You might be familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah out of the book of Genesis where God pronounced judgment upon the cities and the region, and he rained down fire from heaven, completely destroying it. Well, it appears with Capernaum, when Jesus asked a rhetorical question in verse 23, will you be exalted to heaven? It seems they were a type of people that thought very highly of themselves. I guess, how, how would you not? I mean, the Savior of the world called Capernaum his hometown, Sometimes when you come into Stratford, you can see those nice green signs that state, you know, the the championships, state championships from the high school. And people take really pride in that. I imagine if Capernaum was a city in America today, they would have a, a green sign that says, hometown of Jesus Christ. So no doubt they felt prideful of themselves. And Jesus asked this rhetorical question, do you really think you're going to be honored? Do you really think you're going to be lifted up? Do you really... Think you're going to be exalted? And then he points out the opposite will happen, and that they will descend into Hades. Hades was a place known for the dead. It's the place where the wicked people went. It was synonymous with the Old Testament place Sheol. Jesus is basically calling out the inhabitants of Capernaum, saying, "You think you are heaven bound? You're heading for hell. You think you are righteous, but you are more wicked than the inhabitants of Sodom." doesn't seem like a great way to win over your neighbors, does it? But Jesus is trying to awaken God's people to what is happening before their eyes, which the other towns were not able to experience. One thing we can take from this is it doesn't matter where you're born. You might be born in a Christian nation, but that doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. You may be in a Christian family, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You may live in a Christian community, but that doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't matter who we think we are, because we are nothing without Christ. We are dead in our sins. We are lost. We are heading for hell without Christ. And this is why it's so important when we hear the gospel, when we hear the good news, we respond appropriately through repentance. We are all sinners in need of God's forgiveness. Amen? We're all sinners in need of God's grace, His strength, His mercy, His faithfulness. And the thing about repentance we must understand as believers is repentance does not end at salvation. We repent so we can become saved, but since we're being continually transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, we are going to experience conviction still as believers when we realize how short and how far we still are in being compared to Christ. The more we get to know God, the more we get to know Jesus, the more we get stirred by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, the more we should realize how far we still have to go and how much we still need to repent of. And Paul spoke of counting everything as lost except for knowing Jesus. When he spoke about being found in Christ and sharing in the suffering of Christ, when he wrote to the Philippian believers, he did it with the understanding that he knew he had yet to arrive where he needed to be in Christ. This is what, why Paul was led to write through the Spirit, not that I have already obtained this or i am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. That's Philippians 3.14. Paul is basically letting us know he understood he had yet to arrive to the place where he fully needed to be, where he fully spiritually belonged. And this is why he delivers this instruction in verses 13 and 14. But I, do, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now when Paul wrote this through the Spirit, he wasn't giving us a verse so we could put on a sports t-shirt. That's not what he was talking about at all. He's telling us none of us have it all together. None of us are 100% who we should be according to the Word of God. None of us have fully arrived spiritually to where God wants us to be. So we must forget what lies behind us, which is our past, our sins, and strain and press on toward the goal of the upward call. That language there in Philippians chapter 3 that Paul uses paints this picture that this is going to be difficult, this is going to be painful. That word strain actually means to be stretched. It means to become uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. The word press means not only to pursue, but to persecute. Meaning we're going to have to persecute our sinful nature, which comes by conviction, which is to lead us to repentance. So we might press on and move forward with purpose. That's what Paul's pointing to. That we would move on with purpose purpose we would strain and press towards the goal and coming back to our passage here in Matthew Jesus is calling out these jewish cities because their lack of response and repenting led them to have a lack of purpose for the kingdom of god then we come to verses 25 through 27 Jesus reveals why some people have a lack of a proper response which leads to the rejection of heaven and eternal life look in verse 25 At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. As Jesus compared cities in our previous verses Here he compares the wise and understanding in verse 25 to little children. That word little children can be read as infants or childlike. Verses 25 through 27, even though I read Jesus declared, it actually should be read as Jesus prayed. And he begins his prayer by thanking the Father, which means praising the sovereignty of God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, meaning he is in full control. He has full authority, and he is the master over all things. A strange thing about this prayer is Jesus is praising God because he's hiding something from one group of people, but he's revealing something to another group of people. Verse 26 is interesting because it's very difficult to translate from the original Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. The ESV, which is what I read from, is, says, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The New International Version reads it, As this was your, is what you were pleased to do. The New Living Translation says it pleased you to do it this way. And the Amplified reads it as this was well-pleasing in your sight. The gracious will of God points to his desire. What God desires, verse 26. Father, for such was your desire. That leads to an interesting question. If God's desire is for all people to be saved, the Bible tells us that then why does God hide something from a certain group of people which would enable that to happen? It appears to be what Jesus is saying here in verses 25 through 27, but it isn't. The word wise there in verse 25. And the Greek points to someone who has a professional status. They are regarded as someone that is capable of deeper things of life. They are well-trained. The word understanding can be read as clever or intelligent, and it speaks of a person who can evaluate a circumstance, evaluate a situation, you can evaluate what something is said, and they can draw a conclusion because they have common sense. What Jesus is saying is that the things of God have been hidden to the wise and the understanding, and the reason they're hidden is because they're too blind to see how simple the gospel message actually is. They instead rely upon their own worldly understandings, and they pride themselves in their human excellence. The gospel calls us to understand things, though in a spiritual sense, and realize that we have no human excellence because of our sin, especially compared to the holiness of God. And the reason it's revealed to little children at the end of verse 25 is because little children are humble and completely dependent upon the Father. And so things are revealed to them. Now Paul delivers this same sort of message, but in a different way in Romans chapter 1, when he says that people are storing up the wrath of God upon them. He writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, the wise and understanding, are without excuse. For although they they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The things of God are hidden to some people in this world because some people are so caught up in their own achievements. They're caught up in everything that they can do. And therefore, they believe they don't need God or God doesn't exist. Now, why was this God's will? It's for those who have perceived or have the things revealed to them, the spiritual things, the gospel, so that we can recognize people in this world who are wise and understanding And why they're so opposed to the gospel message. Because the gospel message comes to this place where we have to realize we can't do anything to save ourselves. Only Jesus Christ can save us. And we're not even worthy of that. We can't do enough stuff in life even to make ourselves worthy of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And so it comes to a place where we become little children. And we humble ourselves. And we become dependent on what God has done for us in our place. But Jesus is revealing this is the reason for a lack of response. It isn't, if we're too full of ourselves, then we have no room for Jesus Christ in our life. Don't you hear that again? If you're too full of yourself, you have no room for Jesus Christ in your life. Verse 27 then reveals the intimate relationship that Jesus Christ has with his Father but also the importance of understanding who Jesus is in that relationship and how we can come to know Jesus and God the Father intimately. Now, some take that verse, verse 27, as a banner for predestination or Calvinism, but that's not what Jesus is saying there at all. Jesus is saying, verse 27, God the Father has handed... Or he has entrusted all the authority that he has, being the Lord of heaven and earth. He has entrusted that to Jesus the Son. And now in Jesus' authority, he now commissions his people, believers, to go out in that power of the Holy Spirit. No one can come to salvation until the Holy Spirit convicts that person of their sin, leading them to repent and seek forgiveness. The statement of Jesus about choosing is elaborating what he has already said in verses 25 and 26. He is saying that salvation is not dependent upon any human, anything a human being can do or bring to the table. It is only through the revelation of Jesus Christ and the holiness of God, which is completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So how does the Holy Spirit reveal The need for salvation to people. Well, again, we turn to Scripture. God has chosen us, not just Pastor Mike. He's chosen all of his people as his chosen instruments of righteousness to be ministers of reconciliation. And so, with that understanding, there is no biblical backing to predestination or Calvinism. Because We don't know who will be saved or who won't be saved. God does, because God knows all things. God knows who's going to be his child, who's going to find salvation, and who's going to receive eternal life, but we don't. And so we have no excuse to not share the gospel. But we have to realize there are going to be people we're going to encounter. They're going to be like Chorazin, like Bethsaida, like Capernaum, like the wise and understanding who think that they are higher and greater and mightier than God. We're going to encounter those when we share the gospel. But notice, even though Jesus has reprimanded and rebuked and revealed, notice what he does there in verse 28 through 30. He offers an invitation. He still offers an invitation to a town that did not respond to him correctly, to people who thought, They could do it all on their own and were proud of themselves. Verse 28, come to me. That's the invitation. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Even though these towns didn't repent, even though these people thought they were better off without God or didn't need God and they're proud of themselves and they didn't humble themselves, Jesus still delivers the invitation. And I say that because we have to as well. It doesn't matter how stubborn people are in the world or are so attached to the world. We have to continue to deliver the invitation of Jesus Christ so they can be saved Jesus here is speaking to the same people he just reprimanded, and he delivers the invitation to come and be his disciple. And so here is what we find when we respond to Jesus, and this is what we can expect in responding to Jesus. We have polar opposites here, right? There are people being invited, and they're worn out. They're burdened. It's the image of people who are still dealing with sin daily on their own and trying to work it out on their own. And Jesus gives an invitation to those things that have been hidden from them, trying to reveal it to them so the situation in their life can change. He's telling us that he knows this world is tiring. He knows this world wears us down. He knows this world carries a heavy burden upon us. He knows that sin puts a heavy load upon our shoulders and our hearts and it wears down our soul and our mind. But Jesus says, if you would just come to me, you'll find rest. The word rest there in verse 28 and again in verse uh, 29. The word rest carries the meaning of revival. If you don't know what revivals are, It's an awakening. It's a spiritual awakening. The word rest not only carries a spiritual awakening in our hearts and our souls and our lives, but the word rest also carries the word of being refreshed. Who doesn't want that? To be so spiritually awake and refreshed no matter what is going on in this world. That's what Jesus is offering here. But the issue, as pointed out in the previous passages, is people don't realize they need it or they just don't want it. And we as believers can do the same thing. We can try to run our own race, do our own thing, and when we end up all worn out, burnt out. Jesus, come to me. Come to me. I will refresh you and I will revive you. The imagery of verse 29 concerning the yoke is taken from the agricultural fields, which Jesus' audience would have been very familiar with. It's basically a wooden bar that was placed on the back of an ox, and typically there were two of them together, so two oxes would pull the plow while the farmer would steer them in a straight row. And so with this image, Jesus is inviting us to join him in plowing the fields for harvest, Responding to Jesus is to be a part of the harvest. It is to be a worker. It is to go out and preach the good news, to proclaim the gospel, to allow people to be introduced to Jesus Christ. The image is that he places the yoke on us. He says, take my yoke, which means that we are the oxen. Which means as the oxen, when we take the yoke, he is the one that has to direct us. And the only one that can direct us to rest and refreshment and revival. But it also is telling us when we respond to Jesus, we have to submit to his lordship. By submitting to Jesus, we accept the task that he has given us to preach the gospel. To share the gospel, the good news. And so we take the yoke of Jesus by learning from him there in verse 29. Which means responding to Jesus is to be a disciple. To be a disciple is how the Christians were first known as. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And to be a disciple means you must be a constant learner. You must constantly be learning about the depths of God through the Word of God. Again, it's in this promise that we're promised rest. And Jesus says, look, I'm not an angry leader. I'm not a mean leader, verse 29, but... I am gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart means I'm humble. And Jesus is promising us when we come to him, he'll care for us as the little children. And this was a huge contrast to what his audience, the Jewish people, would have been familiar with with their teachers and their leaders as they kept putting burdens on the people of God. They thought they were wise and understanding. The religious leaders prided themselves in their positions and their knowledge of God's word, but Jesus is going to reveal through his ministry they didn't even understand God. And Jesus is saying, unlike these religious leaders of his day, he's not going to overburden his disciples with laws and traditions. Instead, he's going to call them to joy and life and freedom. Jesus' yoke is easy because it frees us from the law and just calls us to surrender to the love of God phrase, rest for your souls, there in verse 29, is taken from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah in chapter 6. In that situation, Jeremiah is speaking out against Jerusalem, the city of God. He's saying that judgment is coming because the people of God would not listen. They thought they were so big and so proud in their own eyes. They lusted after the things of the world, much like what Jesus is pointing out in our passage this morning. In the midst, though, of the coming judgment of Jeremiah chapter 6, that the prophet is speaking over the people of God, he says that if you would just look to God, Jesus says, come, if you would just look to God and you would return to God, which is what repenting is, then the, in return to the Ancient of Days, which speaks of the law given by Moses, then they would find the good way and they would find rest for your souls. Here Jesus is saying the same thing. If we would just listen to God's Word, if we would just respond appropriately to His invitation, if we would repent when the Holy Spirit convicts us to repent, we would find the promise of escaping judgment and instead find rest. And this could point to eternal rest in heaven where there's going to be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more anger, no more sin, no more death. I'd like to wrap up this morning by quoting from Craig Blumberg's Bloomberg's commentary on this passage. He writes, The invitation to come to Christ remains for all today. But now as then it requires the recognition that persons cannot come by exalting themselves, but only by completely depending on and trusting in Christ. Jesus delivers the same invitation this morning, one that Paisley accepted and has come to confess before you through baptism. He delivers the invitation to all of us here this morning. Come to him to find rest and escape judgment. How do you do that? First, it begins by admitting that you're a sinner, and then repenting of their sins, turning away from them, acknowledging that you're a sinner to God. But then it goes to a place of knowing that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that you might be forgiven of those sins by God and be given eternal life, because Jesus not only died, he rose from the grave to grant that incredible gift. Once you believe that in your heart, that I'm a sinner before God, and Jesus died for my sins and rose again, that I can be forgiven and given eternal life, the Bible says there's one more thing you must do. You must confess Jesus Christ As your Lord and Savior, you must confess your need for God's forgiveness. And if you're here today, and this is something you need to do, then this is the time of invitation, and I'm going to invite you to come. You just have to say, Pastor Mike, I need to be forgiven, or Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. And I guarantee you there's not going to be a person in this room that's not going to celebrate with you. The heavens will erupt when one person comes to Christ. But maybe you're here this morning, and God has been speaking to your heart about something in your life that is not matching up to God's will and God's word. And the Holy Spirit's been trying to convict you. You know, the Bible says when God disciplines us, it's because he loves us. Because he's our father and we're his children. And maybe you have not been responding appropriately to what God has been laying on your heart. So maybe you just need to come and kneel before the father and say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I repent and I turn away from that. I'm going to ask the fetters to come and lead us in a song, I want to pray over us. But if you need to come, I invite you to come. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that we all can be hard-hearted and we all can be stubborn, and yet you still deliver the invitation to be changed by you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that your spirit would speak to their heart in the only way you can and bring them to a place of conviction and repentance and ultimately salvation. But Lord, you know we all as your children struggle and stumble and we fall into temptation. Forgive us, Lord, if we have not been listening to your voice so we might truly find rest. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. We ask your kingdom be done and your will be done and you continue to be glorified in this time. praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.